Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us on this Mother's Day. And, and can I please have all the moms and the grandmas stand up at this time and please remain standing for just a little bit? No moms today. Uh, we want to recognize you and thank you for all that you've done and all that you're doing, all that you continue to do that often goes by so thanklessly, uh, which you embody in your love and in your sacrifice uh, gives and helps for us give the gospel some flesh for us to see and to feel and, and point to the love of God and his sacrifice for us. You guys point us to Jesus, and even when it is that uh, you may feel you don't do this perfectly, it also helps us to understand that true belief and Genuine faith is not always done so perfectly, but is nonetheless genuine. Uh, you point us to a God of great forgiveness, of amazing grace. You show to us your God who helps the weary and gives strength to the weak, gives wisdom to the simple, a glory to the mundane. And so please know that what each of you do is eternally significant, even when it does not seem that way all of the time. And even when we may not appreciate it as much as we ought to do, uh, you each do have a very high calling, a glorious calling, and we thank each of you for taking up that mantle. And so while you're still standing, we do want to pray for uh, these women that God has given to us, and would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we're so thankful for how good you are to us, and especially how uh, you've been so good to so many of us in giving to us these women. Uh, we're grateful for their love and affection uh, wisdom and guidance, their patience, their endurance, uh, their sacrificial heart. Would you please uh, bless these moms and, and keep them and cause uh, your face to shine upon them? Would you bring them closer to you more and more? And so as we celebrate them, Father, we know we're really celebrating you. You're the giver of all good gifts. And, and now as we turn to your word this morning, would you give to us uh, the grace to understand it? by the Holy Spirit, convict our hearts of its truth. Uh, help us to know who you are and how much it is that you do love us. Please, God, show to us the glory of Jesus Christ. It's in his mighty name we pray, amen. Thank you, moms and grandmas. And I invite you now to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in chapter 8 and verse 22 as we continue our study of the book of Luke after a few-week break. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 865 if you are using a church Bible, page 865. Luke chapter 8 and verse 22. Now it has been several weeks since we've been in the book of Luke, but Luke has opened up his gospel with the explicit intention of giving to his readers a certainty and a confidence in the things that they have been taught about Jesus. This is a book that is all about Jesus so that we might have faith in him who Jesus is so that we might put our trust in him. And we find Jesus in our text. He is now away from the crowds. He is out of the eye of public ministry, and he is in a more intimate setting with his group of followers. We have Jesus' discipleship here in a much smaller venue. 
He's with the 12 who have left all things to be with him. And in these next few passages, Jesus is giving to them visuals and experiences to display his power in very real and very trying situations and in the midst of hardships and struggles, the purpose of which is, again, to demonstrate who Jesus is in his power, authority, character, and grace so that they might put their faith in him. Christology, the study of Christ and discipleship following after him, they go hand in hand. Because the more and more we know of him, the more and more we will entrust ourselves to him. We behold him to grow our faith together. And this is done in our passage within the context of adversity. We read in verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. We see here Jesus is leading his disciples into a time of adversity, and he's relatively at peace with it. Jesus is the one who brings them into this dangerous situation. And we must know and, and understand that God may occasionally bring his people through a time of sudden trial or a heavy hardship, uh, an unforeseen by us and very difficult circumstance, which may cause us to panic. But these are not unforeseen by God, nor is he panicking at all. Because adversity can often be the very context by which we might see our God all the more clearly. Now, the lake here is the Sea of Galilee. It's not a small lake. It's a large lake. It's about 700 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by mountains and hills. And when it's calm, it's beautiful. It's still relatively undeveloped today. A, a team of people from our church got to stay at a hotel across the street from the lake. And you can see right to the other side. But because it is below sea level and surrounded by high mountains and hills, gusts of air can gain momentum and bury down those mountains and onto the lake, often unpredictably, which can make the lake look more like a raging and treacherous sea than it does a lake. That is what is happening here. But again, I think it's important to note that this is Jesus' idea to get into this boat with his disciples and say to him, say to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. His followers are doing everything right at this point. They've left all to follow Jesus. They've left everything they've known to be with him. They are obeying Jesus at this very moment, and yet they still are experiencing tough times. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that following Jesus does not mean that we will avoid adversity within this life or that we will necessarily be delivered from all of its troubles. And being a Christian and a believer does not guarantee a life of zero difficulty or that somehow trials and temptations are going to be an exception rather than the rule to faithful living. Each of the great displays of God's power in the book of Luke through Jesus Christ thus far has been accomplished with the backdrop of precarious situations and hardships and tribulations, as will be the case within this passage and in the next three as well. This is important for us to understand, because if we expect only smooth sailings as believers, 
and that the life of faith is only full of comfort and external peace, then we will be utterly startled when we have to live in this sin-laden world and endure creation that is filled with corruption and reside on a planet that is surely not the way that it is supposed to be. We must expect adversity and not be startled by it. And if our hopes are purely situational, and that we strive to avoid all that is uncomfortable by changing our situations with the hope that this is all going to get better one day or that the world is going to become a better place really, really soon, then we're going to be utterly disappointed every step of the way. God will often lead his people through shocking and very rough situations, and while these things may startle us, they do not startle our Lord and our Savior. When we experience these things... It does not necessarily mean that we have veered off track, for God is often in the same boat with us, captaining us through difficult situations so that he might show to us who he really is, so that he might reveal himself to us in ways that a peaceful lake simply cannot. Because it is so often through a storm that we get to see ourselves for who we really are, and then we get to see Jesus for who he really is which is exactly why Jesus leads us through these things at certain times in our lives. Look with me at verse 24. Both of these things are happening. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? We see here, again, a clearer picture of who Jesus is in the storm, and we get a clearer picture of who the disciples are in the storm. We get a display of Jesus' power and authority, and we get a display of the disciples' lack of faith in him. First, Jesus' power and authority. You know, while it's common that storms would come on the Sea of Galilee, it's very uncommon for experienced fishermen to be this afraid where they think that they are going to perish. This is the kind of storm that could easily have 60, 70 mile an hour winds and waves are beating that boat to the point where even the most seasoned of them think that these may be our very last moments. Their ship is filling with water. The winds are blowing. The disciples are rowing with all their might and bailing out that water at the same time and they are panicking. And it's in the midst of this that Jesus is woken up as they cry out to him and he arises and rebukes the wind and rebukes the raging waves as if they were petulant children acting out of line, and immediately the storm stops. There's no cool down. The text says there was a calm. The raging sea becomes a flat lake within an instant. Jesus doesn't have to count down and give the storm five more seconds to get his act together. I mean, even when I scold our kids and when they're out of line, they still try and get in that last word. Give me one last stare. Stomp off and mean mug as they go to their timeout. Here, it's not as if the winds drop to a more manageable 20 miles an hour or as if the waves drop to only shoulder high. There is this instant calm. The storm is looking more like a swimming pool because Psalm 89.9 says, speaking of Yahweh, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Who alone has this kind of power? And who alone has this kind of authority? That the creation must obey its maker and its master. Jesus, the one peacefully asleep inside of this boat, he does. Jesus has the authority that only God himself has. 
Luke is giving to us a clearer picture of exactly who Jesus is. But Luke also gives to us a clearer picture of his followers as well. And you can't help but be sympathetic to these men. If you've ever felt yourself close to drowning or maybe been in a situation where you're just inches away from losing your life, that panic is utterly understandable. But just because it is understandable does not mean that it is warranted at this point in the book of Luke. If Jesus is the Messiah, if he is the promised one, the son of David and the son of Abraham and the fulfillment of ancient covenant, and if he is, like John the Baptist says, the long-awaited salvation being proclaimed in their midst because Jesus is here, and he has already displayed a godlike authority in his preaching, in his healing of the most incurable ailments, in his expulsion of the most dreadful, unclean spirits. If Jesus is the Christ and his kingdom is near, then purely, logically, and theologically speaking, this storm cannot be the end of the story. Jesus himself has said, we're going to go to the other side of the lake. He has never lied before. His word has always been true, which means we're going to get to the other side of that lake. But so often it is that our minds cannot focus on theology. Our, our thoughts cannot center on Christology when there seems to be a bigger and more pressing need right in front of our faces. We tend to focus much of our attention right here and not upon him. Maybe it's an unforeseen scan of your body that reveals something that startles you. That's all I can think about. A breakup, a, a divorce that alters your view of how the future's gonna be. It's right here. A job loss, a car accident, a sudden death in the family, and immediately what is front and center starts to eclipse what is ultimate and what is transcendent. And it's not as if these men have no faith. They've already left everything to follow Jesus. There already is a faith within them. But the faith required to be followers when the miracles are astonishing and the crowds are growing and stalking their every move and everyone is fawning all over Jesus and there aren't any hardships at all, the faith to follow then and the faith to trust Jesus then is altogether something different than the faith needed to trust Jesus within a storm like this one. It's different when you do not see what God sees and when you're in the dark, so to speak. And this storm and that feeling of helplessness and hopelessness and not being in control and wondering what it is that Jesus is doing can be very hard to understand, especially when it is that we did all the right things. We left all. We obeyed all. And there can be this frustration because it seems that Jesus is utterly unaware of our predicament. And then there can be this bitterness and even resentment. How can these things be happening to me if God really loves me? Why do I have to go through what it is that I am going through unless God is indifferent to what I am going through? And the thing we become most aware of in these moments is our own hardship, our own suffering, and the thing we become least aware of and least certain of is his love for us and his control of the situation at hand. I'm sinking, God, and you are sleeping, God, becomes a cry of someone who is losing their grip on him. And our storm of suffering and our time of adversity begins to interpret to our hearts who God is, and then we can so easily view him through the lens of what is happening to little old me. When we look at our circumstances first, 
and then interpret Jesus through them instead of thinking of Jesus first and his character and his love and his power and his sovereignty and his authority and then interpreting the circumstances by him. Have they already forgotten Jesus' love towards a leper that he touches the most untouchable, his power over the most vicious of demons, his calling of them to come and follow him, the teaching they've heard they've already forgotten? They were sitting mere feet from his own lips and hearing about the kingdom of God. Have they forgotten that Jesus is in this very same boat with them right now, that nothing can happen to them that is not happening to him at the same time? This storm that Jesus is bringing his followers through to experience tells themselves a lot more about what is within their own hearts than it does about what is within him. And that's true about most unexpected adversity that God may guide us through as well. It it squeezes us. It reveals to us what's inside of us and what we really believe or not believe about our Savior. It unveils to us faith or a lack thereof in ways that a calm and glassy lake cannot. You know, in the book of Daniel, there's a remarkable account of faith in God in chapter 3. And the ruler there, King Nebuchadnezzar, had been duped into making a decree that everyone would have to bow down to this golden image when they hear the horns. And whoever does not bow down is going to get thrown into this fiery furnace. Now he's duped because the people who convince him to make that decree, they really want to get rid of the Jewish people of faith who would not want to bow down to anyone other than Yahweh. And three believers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't do it. They don't bow down and worship the image when they hear those horns horning. And therefore, the king is furious. They don't do it because they fear their God as king more than any earthly king. And so Nebuchadnezzar confronts them in verse 14, and he says, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? He confronts them, and then later he threatens them. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This isn't just a little stove. The guys who throw people in the furnace, they die too, just being that near to the fire. But listen to how these men answer him in verse 16. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, it's like it doesn't matter if we're delivered or not. We're not going to bow down. But if not, it's totally up to him. It's totally up to him. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. When you squeeze these guys, their faith comes out. That's what adversity does. God can and will deliver us out of your hands, but if not out of the fiery furnace, we still trust in him. They trust in him, not the outcome. They trust in him, not lower temperatures. They trust in him, not the potentiality of a miracle. They trust in God. And you know what happens? They get thrown into the fire. And in verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's looking into the fire, and he's utterly astonished. Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. But I see four men unbound, 
walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Who's in that fire with them? But the son of God himself. And that's the confidence of every believer that whatever it is that I have to go through, the son of God is with me. And so they don't get delivered from the fire in one sense. You know, this passage is not a promise to us that God will necessarily save us from every storm. And this passage is not a promise to us that God will always rescue us from every kind of hardship and every kind of uncomfortability. Almost every single person in this boat with Jesus is going to die in the near future a fairly violent death of martyrdom. Some are going to be burned until their bones are ashes. Another crucified, one of them upside down according to church history. But none of these ever felt that they would ever perish like they did and felt in this boat with Jesus asleep. They trusted in their God. They had faith in the one who laid down his own life to the death so that they might truly live. That even if they have to experience the worst of the worst, they knew, they knew that we will never be alone without him. That the promise he had given to them and the promise he gives all to who believe found at the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus begins the sentence, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. It's mine. At the end of that sentence, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's something about the fact that Jesus Christ is with us that makes everything else almost irrelevant. And it's not because these issues and struggles are meaningless. They are absolutely not meaningless. But because having Jesus with us means everything more than anything else can mean something. This is the faith that Jesus is trying to build into his followers, the trust in him, the understanding of who he is. And this is what matters most in this life. Brothers and sisters, our faith in Jesus will often be most demonstrated when there seems to be no tangible proof of his presence with us. That faith is most exhibited when we're able to face adversity and endure any kind of storm because we look first to Christ and then see the hardship through his presence with us and his loving care of us to build in us this faith in him rather than looking to the hardship first and foremost and then interpreting that God must not care for us at all if I'm going through this at this very moment. What Jesus is doing again is discipling his followers here and discipling us as well through his word because Jesus' primary concern is their faith in him, because that is what matters most in this life. Notice that in the aftermath of this potentially uh, most fearful situation that these men have ever found themselves in, Jesus' question is not how your guys' body is doing. You guys got bumps and bruises? Is your body okay? Are any of you guys physically injured? That's not what he asks. He didn't say, how's the boat? Are we going to make it? Is this thing still seaworthy? A lot of a fisherman's livelihood is attached to that boat. Jesus doesn't ask, where's your mental well-being? What level is your anxiety on a scale of one to ten? And all of these things are important in their own way, but Jesus asked them what is of primary importance, and that is, where is your faith? Where's your faith? 
What these men needed most was not calmer waters or a bigger ship or less wind or different conditions. What they needed most was a clearer picture of Jesus Christ, a more accurate assessment of who he is that is in the same boat with them so that they might trust in him more than they do at this very moment. And it's the same which is true today as it was in the first century, that Jesus' priority in our lives is our faith in him. Jesus' priority in our lives is that we might truly come to know him. There is a priority of belief, of trust, and of faith in Christ that should be our priority over absolutely everything else as well. But sadly, faith can so often be our very last priority, which we'll only get to when it is more convenient. We have so many other priorities. I just have to hit this level financially, and then, then I can focus on my faith. I just have to get into this school and then pass this test and get my future going, and then I can focus on trusting on Jesus, career this, hustle that, and then I can put my effort into trusting God more. Maybe when the kids get older and they are out of diapers, then and only then will I make my faith in God my priority. Popularity this, sports that, and then my leftover time to nurture my faith if there's nothing better to watch on TV. Faith often brings up the rear and is the first to fall off once things get busy. And then we make so many of life's decisions, like where to live and where to work and how to raise and educate the kids, all based on other priorities which we make of primary importance and our faith and our family's faith in Christ when the time comes. Because something else is more pressing to me at this very moment. So often we make other things primary and then he necessarily, by definition, becomes secondary. This is the exact reverse of what the Lord desires for his people. Because when it is that we make our faith primary, everything else becomes a much, much distant second, third, fourth, etc. always. And the rebuke to Jesus' followers here on this lake is a rebuke so many of us, and myself included, need to hear as well. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Jesus is right here. And oftentimes we look more to a boat or calmer waters, a bank account which screams real security, a child's future which gives me greater hope, a potential spouse that can give me a love God never could, we find more certainty in a particular person being elected, more security in family well-being, when all the while we should be looking towards the Son of God and the glory of God in his face. You know, for those of us who may be in the thick of something, and maybe no one knows that but you, I want to encourage you to always look to Christ first and then to the situation at hand in that order. Look to his power Dwell upon his authority, his love, his selfless, sacrificial love proven upon the cross. And then, then know that if you're going through the thick of it, it must be for good. It must be to build your faith in him so that you may have a security that nothing else could ever take away. Where is your faith? I, th I think we have to be asking ourselves this more and more on the regular. You know, I also want to encourage you moms and grandmas here on this Mother's Day that the, the best thing 
you could ever hand down to us and the most important thing you could ever give to us, if you could, is your own trust in Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul writes to Timothy there, I am reminded of your sincere faith. That's Timothy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. That's so much more important than passing down a certain recipe or contagious laughter. I know nothing about Lois or Eunice in all of the scriptures except their faith in Christ. How often it is that our first view of the glory of Jesus Christ is actually through your own eyes, mothers. We see him through your lens, and then we begin to see him through our own. And so I want to encourage you moms to put first things first. You have, again, a high honor and a glorious calling, and we thank you for taking up that mantle. And so Jesus is discipling his followers here by showing to them who he is in power and in authority, and he is showing to them who they are in their need to focus more on him as primary and everything else as secondary. We continue, and they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. Here we see the followers of Jesus replacing one fear for an altogether different kind of fear. The disciples who once were so afraid of the storm are now afraid and marveling at this Jesus who is in the same boat as they are, that he's much more powerful than any storm and much more fearful in his might and authority and much less manageable in the categories within their own minds. And I think this is the kind of feeling that God's people have had throughout history when they've encountered the Lord. You know, when Israel was fleeing Egypt, if you remember, uh, Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. Let my people go, Moses, Egypt. Well, they let them go, and they plunder Egypt. And so Israel's exiting, and then Pharaoh has a change of mind. And so he gathers his forces and their chariots and their weapons and their anger, and they're coming after the Israelites. And the Israelites are running away, and they hit this dead end right at the Red Sea. And so they have the sea in front of them. They have the enemies behind them, and they have nowhere to run. There's dangers on both sides, and it looks as if they are going to perish. And then, all of a sudden, Yahweh splits that sea into two, and they cross on dry land. It wasn't that the water just split. The water got sucked out of the ground of the sea, so it was dry, and then it splits. And they arrive on the other side, safe and sound, and they look behind, and those Egyptians try to come after them, and those walls of water come right down on their enemies, pursuing them, and they all perish. The strength of Egypt, the entirety of it all, is gone in a moment. Do you think their fear of Egypt and Pharaoh and the chariots and their awe of that might and that power compare at all at this point to what they've just experienced in God's salvation of them. It's not even close. An experience like that changes everything. One fear is replaced entirely by an altogether different kind of fear, which is similar to what is happening with these disciples in the boat. Their newfound fear and awe of Jesus Christ makes their previous fear of all that boat-breaking storm incident seem entirely inconsequential. 
Because when we understand who God is, that awe, that reverence, that fear begins to melt all other kinds of fear. You know, uh, uh, Jeff, uh, our pastoral intern, he brought this up at our staff meeting in our Bible reading plan, Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And he's telling us, flying back from the mainland, looking out the window, there is a lot of water on planet Earth. Hours and hours of looking at water before you get back to Hawaii. All that water fits right here in the hand of God. Do we realize this? Can we fear him? Can we stand in awe of him more than we do anything else so that we trust in him more than we do anything else? We cannot fear storms when we fear him. We cannot fear adversity when we fear him. What does David say in Psalm 23? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. And so Luke is drawing our attention to the person and the power of Jesus so that we might truly know who he is, so that we might exchange one fear for another in ways that break our safe categories of God, so that we might entrust ourselves entirely to him, that we would be in a fearful awe, that our Lord and our Savior is ours, that he is with us, and not let any kind of storm be in our minds somehow bigger than he is. This is a fear we need, brothers and sisters. Proverbs 9 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is Jesus' goal in your life. This is the wisdom and the insight that he is beckoning us to live in. Now, as we come to the Lord's table on the second Sunday of the month, we are reminded of the very power of Jesus for our salvation. You know, Jesus can stop a storm just by saying, stop. But he doesn't eradicate sin by merely rebuking it with his word like he does a storm. No, Jesus, the way he decimates the power of sin is by dying as sin in our place. Jesus, the way he defeats the power of death is by dying so that he can rise from the grave. He has to go through it. And it's even in our text that we see this utter humanity of Jesus. I mean, have you ever been so tired that you can fall asleep almost anywhere? Sometimes even just leaning on a wall? Remember Laura in her uh, grad school program and teaching at the same time, we went to this concert and everyone's standing on their bleacher chairs, jumping up and down, and she's sitting on them sleeping because she's so exhausted from her new schedule. It shows a certain kind of weakness that we have, that we need sleep. And if we don't get it, we become like babies who just doze off. And we're reminded that the strength and the authority of Jesus is here married to this humanity and weakness of Jesus. He's sleeping in the midst of a storm because he's that tired. He's that exhausted from ministry to the masses. What does it mean when he says, my body I give to you? I mean, what kind of body did he take to give himself to us? What did he lay aside so that he might be our savior? What does that mean to be truly God and yet truly man? To fall asleep in a boat and still stop the storm with the word of his mind? Isn't this truth of our salvation more awe-inspiring than any still storm could ever be? That this 
God, man, he pays our price. That this Jesus Christ, this Messiah, this king dies for his enemies. He beckons us through his resurrection to live a life that is entirely new. That God would become man to die as man for man. Isn't that so much more fearful to behold? And therefore, we can trust in him that if he be with us, we can endure anything. And if we have faith in him, we need not fear anything. And I encourage you, maybe you feel your faith is weak like we all so often feel. It is here in our text that even with small, weak, untested, and immature faith, these disciples, when they cry out to Jesus, he hears. A storm doesn't wake our Savior up, but when his people cry out to him, he comes to their aid. If you find yourself ever in any need, cry out to your God, brothers and sisters. Would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, uh, we ask that by your grace and by your mercy, you would give us certainty that you would give us genuine and real faith in Jesus Christ, that you would more and more by your Holy Spirit and through your word give us eyes to see him and behold his glory for who he really is, that we might entrust ourselves and everything we love and hold dear, we might trust ourselves into his hands. We ask, God, that you would use our little church in mighty ways, that our faith would be evident to all so that people might see how good you really are, how kind you are, how loving you are, Lord, would you please bring a lot of people to come to know you through our church families. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.